Good morning, friends. We just watched a video that was recorded previously that told us about how God had called Mo and Colleen and their family to move to New York City. And just a few days ago in this sanctuary, we had a memorial for Mo's mom to celebrate her life. The Dixon family is going through a lot of changes, so we ask that right now you'd keep them in your prayers. Hold them up. And before they leave, if you can take the opportunity to tell them what they mean to you and what they've, how God's used them in your life, please do so. My name is Bob, and I'm one of the elders here at City Light. And I want to ask you a question. Have you ever been asked a question that rocked your world? Years ago, I had a Bible study with some men in farmhouse fraternity at UNL. And one of the guys in the study named Nick was the house president. I asked Nick a question similar to a question that Jesus asked his disciples. It was a question that rocked their world. I asked my friend Nick, who do the men in your fraternity say that Jesus is? Nick thought for a moment, and then he said, Jesus is a nice guy. I looked at the other guys in the study. I looked at Nick, and I said, men, listen to me. Jesus is not a nice guy. Does it shock you to hear me say that? You see, nice is way too plain a word to describe Jesus. If it shocks you, I'd have to say that you haven't been paying attention to the message of the Gospels and how Jesus is presented authentically as he is. As we've been going through the Sermon on the Mount, we learn that Jesus is way better than nice. And he's way stronger than nice. No one who met Jesus in his day said, he's a nice guy. They don't crucify nice guys. They give him cute little trophies. Matthew, the disciple, focused the message of his gospel primarily to Jewish people. But they're for us as well. But in it, he tells them that Jesus is the Messiah the long-awaited king. He begins with the genealogy of a king, and he tells us of his virgin birth and how wise men who were kings of the east came and knelt at his feet and gave him kingly gifts, kings of another country honoring him as a baby king. And he tells how Herod, the king of the Jews, found out about it and tried to take his life away because Herod would have no other king Mary and Joseph and Jesus went to Egypt. And after Herod had died, they came back and lived in Nazareth. And Matthew goes on to tell us how when Jesus was full grown, that God sent a herald, an announcer, before him as king, John the Baptist, whose message was, prepare the way of the Lord. That's how you announce a king. And he said, make straight paths for him. In that day when a king was going to come into a town, they would clean up their roads. They'd make them more level and presentable for a king. John the Baptist is saying, make way for the king. He baptizes Jesus, and Jesus goes into the wilderness to be tempted by the enemy. And in the ways that all of us have been tempted and lost... Jesus was tempted and won because he is the king.
he inaugurates his ministry with this, these words, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. The king has come to bring his kingdom. The word repent means to change your mind, your whole way of processing reality. It means realizing you've been in the wrong story. It's realizing that history is his story. It means to think a whole new way by living rightly under King Jesus. As Jesus goes out preaching and teaching the kingdom, he heals diseases and casts out demons. The king has come, and the natural world and the supernatural world must surrender to his kingship. He goes to some everyday fishermen, and he says, Follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. What do these men do? They obey the words of a king. They follow him. They trade in their nets for a whole new way of fishing. If they would but follow him by living out the mandate of the kingdom, his sermon on the mount, it will be so decidedly different that when they go fishing for men, the fish will jump into the boat. In Matthew 5.1, it says that Jesus... Seeing the crowds went up on the mount and gave the words of the Sermon on the Mount to his disciples. Jesus communicates to the disciples the beauty of how they are called to live as citizens of the kingdom. The Jews live between two different kingdoms. The kingdom of their ancestors as the physical descendants of Abraham and the kingdom that conquered them, the kingdom of the Roman Empire. In the world of the first century Israel, in this sermon, Jesus explains the ethic and the energy of a radically different kingdom. The kingdoms of Israel and the kingdom of Rome are more similar to each other than this kingdom that Jesus brings. As Jesus explains his kingdom, it contrasts strongly with the Pharisee and the pagan, the religious and the renegade, the holier than thou and the heathen. So what is different about this kingdom? In Luke 17, 20 and 21, we read this. Being asked by the Pharisees when the kingdom of God would come, he, that is Jesus, answered them. The kingdom of God is not coming in ways that can be observed, nor will they say, look, here it is, or there, for behold, the kingdom of God is in the midst of you. The kingdom of God is not a kingdom with a geographical location, for the kingdom of God is the rule and reign of Christ within. You can't find the kingdom of God with a GPS. It is you and I becoming step by step the people who exude the kingly nature of our king. Jesus opens his sermon with the blessing of Christ-like character in the Beatitudes and then a call to Christ-like influence where we bring salt to a decaying world and light to a dark world. He challenges the rules and regulations of the Pharisees and commends not just righteous action, but deeper still a Christ-like heart that is motivated by Christ-like authenticity. He reminds us of the inner poverty of materialism said that we might instead seek a Christ-like destiny in heaven. He teaches a Christ-like wisdom by blocking our rush to judge and asks us to first look in the mirror and love our neighbor as ourselves. 
As we see the glory of a Christ-like life, we're tempted with one of two responses. The first one is to be overly optimistic about if we just make a few internal rearrangements of the furniture of our hearts, we can truly exhibit the kingdom ethic. The other occurs when looking realistically at that ethic for a while, we drown in hopeless despair. We declare, how could anyone ever live a life like this? The way of Jesus and his kingdom is higher than we can reach without a fundamental change in each of our hearts. A man who had a profound impact on my life died the year I was born. Obviously, I never met him. His name was Jim Elliott, and he died taking the gospel to the Aka Indians in the jungles of Ecuador. He and three other missionaries were killed by the people they came to reach. Jim Elliott's life impacted me because his widow, Elizabeth, published his journals, and I read from them. Here's one of the things that Jim Elliott said. Father, make of me a crisis man. Bring those I contact to decision. Let me not be a milepost on a single road. Make me a fork that men must turn one way or another upon facing Christ in me. Why did Jim Elliott want to be a crisis man? Because he was the disciple of a crisis man. I am told in Chinese, the word for crisis is made of two different words. One is the word for danger, and the other word is the word for opportunity. A crisis is a dangerous opportunity. Meeting Jesus was a dangerous opportunity. No one ever came in contact with Jesus in the Gospels and got away from Jesus without making a decision. For many weeks, we've been considering the Sermon of All Sermons, the Sermon on the Mount. More books have been written about this sermon probably than any sermon that's ever been preached. Too many of the books come up with this conclusion, Jesus was a nice guy. As we come to the end of the Sermon on the Mount, we discover that Jesus is a crisis man. Jesus is a fork in the road, making men and women, boys and girls, turn one way or the other upon facing Jesus. And so we come to our text this morning. Here, Jesus is laying before us the glory of his kingdom, and he brings us to a decision. Jesus says in Matthew 7, 13 and 14, Enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide, and the way is easy that leads to destruction, and those who enter by it are many. For the gate is narrow, and the way is hard that leads to life, and those who find it are few. Do you feel a fork in the road? I want to suggest that there are two signs at that fork in the road. One sign says counterfeit. The other sign says counterculture. A counterfeit is a less expensive representation of that which is valuable, made in order to deceive. There can be many counterfeits, but there's only one original. Jesus speaks specifically into the ritualistic world of the Pharisaic Jew and the materialistic world of the Gentile. For the Pharisee, the outward show of ritual is a cover-up for their inner lust for the material. In Matthew 23, 25, Jesus says, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! 
For you clean the outside of the cup and the plate, but inside they are full of greed and self-indulgence. Pharisees, you look good on the outside, but on the inside is a lust for what you cannot have, because if you have it, you'll have to give up on your show. For the Gentile, the frenetic chase of the material is a cover-up for lives that are empty of meaning and purpose. Jesus also said, take care and be on your guard against all covetousness, for one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. Everything you and I own will one day be sold, spent, salvaged. But the real question is, are you saved? Some of us live in the culture of the ritual like the Pharisee, and others live in the culture of the material. Many of us, if not most of us, run between the two cultures. We are like the two sons in the prodigal son story. The older son is into ritual. The younger son is into the material. But both are clueless to the love of the father. Jesus calls us out of the way of counterfeit living into countercultural way of the kingdom. The way of the kingdom is a narrow way. It is not a culture of this world, but is instead a counterculture against the world. It is diametrically opposed to the world's way of doing things. In the counterculture of Christ, our righteousness is to exceed that of the Pharisee through an inner righteousness of heart. And our love is to surpass the love of the Gentile by loving even our enemies. D.A. Carson, in his commentary on this passage, uses an illustration. He says that we should imagine entrance into the kingdom as a large cone. Now, in high school, my wife Sandy was a cheerleader. In high school, I was what you'd call a nerd. I never could get a cheerleader to go out with me, but this nerd got to marry a cheerleader. I want to show you here. This is a megaphone that says Sandy on it. This is a megaphone my wife used when she was a cheerleader, and I want to illustrate something. D.A. Carson uses this illustration. He says, the way we want to come to God is like a cone, and we want, we want it to be wide as we come to God. We want to have everything that we want to have, but the problem with that is as we go and move into the cone, it tends to get narrower and narrower. And as you get into the cone, you, you think, oh, no, I wasn't planning on him being a king. I wasn't planning on having to change and be something different. And D.A. Carson says that's not the way we enter the kingdom. In fact, we enter it the opposite way, the narrow way. But as you enter in the narrow way, as you move into the kingdom, your life expands out in blessing and purpose, in influence. That's what happens as you come into the kingdom. So how do you come into the kingdom? Well, we come back to the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount in the Beatitudes. Jesus tells us we're blessed when we come to him with a poverty of spirit, confessing we have no merit before a holy God. We are dirt poor spiritually. We admit we've been chasing rainbows in the ritual or the material or a combination of both. Then we mourn in the realization that we have fallen so far short 
of our holy God and his standard of life. Next, we meekly and humbly come to Christ asking for his deliverance. And we tell him that we hunger and thirst for his righteousness because we have none of our own. We confess that we are people deeply in need of his mercy, and we offer that mercy to others. We become people who are pure, a people of one passion, and begin to see the evidence of God where we never saw him before. We were blind to the work of God. We bring wholeness as peacemakers to the brokenness in the lives of others. And the impact of our lives widens out just like the widening cone. And we extend the king's kingdom in blessing to others. But we also realize that this way of living as a kingdom citizen, of living authentically before God, may make some people uncomfortable. And some may heap abuse on us. We would prefer that it would be different. But we rejoice that Jesus is pleased with our faithfulness to him regardless of how others feel. Blessing in scripture means to be fruitful, to expand, to be put into a large place. It means to have your life amplified like a megaphone amplifies your voice. Let us continue in Matthew 7, reading verses 15 through 20. Jesus says, Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You will recognize them by their fruits. Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? So every healthy tree bears good fruit, but the diseased tree bears bad fruit. A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does bear good fruit is cut down. That does, I'm sorry, every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Then you will recognize them by their fruits. Again, Jesus warns us of counterfeits. Watch out for false teachers who can come not to help but to harm. In the context of this sermon, the false prophet is anyone who declares that the way to enter the kingdom is other than what Jesus declares. Here she says this, it doesn't matter what you believe as long as you're sincere. Do you know that in the Treasury Department of the United States, there are men and women who are trained to spot counterfeit bills? Do you know how they do it? Do you know how they're trained? They study the original bills till they know them like the back of their hands. They don't study counterfeits. Likewise, Jesus tells us how to spot counterfeits. He says, you'll know them by their fruit. I've been Florida over 10 times, and I'm getting good at spotting orange trees, and I'll let you in on my secret. The orange trees are the ones with the oranges on them. I know them by their fruit. D.A. Carson writes this, in Jesus' day, Everyone knew that the buckthorn had little black berries which could be mistaken for grapes and that there was a thistle whose flower might be mistaken for a fig. But no one would confuse the buckthorn and the grape once he started to use the fruit to make some wine. No one would be taken in by thistle flowers when it came to eating figs for supper. As you got close to them, you knew they weren't what they promised. This is why it's so important to do your homework when you listen to any teacher. This is so easy to do in the days of the internet. 
But it's very difficult to see the fruit of a teacher's life if you only see them when they're teaching or just hear them living multiple states and even countries away. The telling point of their life is if it demonstrates the fruit of the Spirit of Christ. Is it marked by love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, and self-control? Not only that, but does it produce that same fruit in the lives of the people who listen? Does it produce the good fruit of the Sermon on the Mount? Things like humility of spirit, obedience to Jesus, a quiet, hidden faithfulness without hypocrisy, and a self-sacrificial love for friend and for enemy. Jesus concludes with these words from verses 21 through 23. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then will I declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. There's a difference between knowing and being known. Jesus gives the example of people who know his name and use it to do miraculous works. These people expect entrance into the kingdom because of what they did. But we don't enter into the kingdom for doing great works. We enter into the kingdom because of the great work that has been done for us by Christ. A number of years ago, a friend of mine was elected to state office, and he invited me to come visit him in the Capitol building. So one day I went to his office, and there was a receptionist sitting there in an outer office, and I asked if I could see him. I said I was his friend. She said sternly, do you have an appointment? I said, no, I don't have an appointment, but he told me to stop by when I was in the Capitol, and I just came by to see him. She said, well, let me check, and I don't think she believed me. She went back into a hallway, turned, and I didn't see where she went, and I stood there for a few minutes and wondered if I would get to see my friend. And then, a bit later, another different woman, his secretary, came out and said to me, to me she said, are you Mr. Walls? I said, well, yes, I am. She said, well, Mr. Walls, you come right on in. You see, I got to see my friend not because I knew about him, but because he knew me. In 1 Corinthians 8, 3, it says, if anyone loves God, he is known by God. You see, there's a difference between information and intimacy. It's the difference between reading someone's eHarmony profile and being married to them for 10 years. Paul wrote in Romans 5.8, But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Do you know what? God's not surprised that you and I are sinners. He knows who you are. And he wants you to know who he is. Intimacy is a two-way street. Do you love God who demonstrated his love for you by giving his son to die for you on the cross? His son, King Jesus, took the penalty of your sin and my sin 
by suffering on the cross. Men and women, boys and girls, you and I can't live the life of the Sermon on the Mount unless we enter into the kingdom of King Jesus through the narrow way of humility, overwhelmed by his love for us and continually turning to him to be faithful to the high calling of the kingdom. Perhaps you've visited City Light a few times, either in person or online, as we are doing right now. Maybe you've been around for a while. Friend, it'd be incredibly sad if after hearing the message of the gospel time and time again, you never received the free gift of eternal life in Jesus Christ. Jesus is at the fork of the road asking you for a decision Will it be to remain in the counterfeit world of ritualistic religion or empty material wealth and attainments? Jesus loves you too much to just be a nice guy and not make you uncomfortable with a decision. He gives you the dignity of making yourself. Someone said to me once that when it comes to accepting God's free gift of new life in Christ, not to decide is to decide. If you never decide to receive it, you have, in effect, decided not to. I was a missionary a number of years ago, and when I came home, I really had very little money to myself. And a friend of my parents came to me and said, do you have a car? I said, no, I don't have a car. He said, I'd like to give you this car. And I didn't know what to make of it. It was too great a gift. No one had ever given me anything like giving me a car. I said, can I think about it? So I thought about it, and I thought about it, and I thought about it. And finally, after a week or two, I called him back, and I said, I think I'd like the car. He said, oh, I'm sorry. I gave it to someone else. My own indecision kept me from receiving what this man wanted to give me. Jesus wants you to have a never-ending relationship with him. Don't make the decision by not deciding. You're standing at a fork in the road, deciding which way to go. Will you humbly admit your inability to earn heaven yourself and receive the gift of forgiveness offered to you in Christ? And believer, will you likewise each and every day live grateful for what Jesus has done for you? To go back to the gospel humbly, poor in spirit, craving the righteousness that you only have in Christ and to live it out with a passion of purity, to love others, to be a peacemaker and bring wholeness to the brokenness of people. This is what our king calls us to, to live the loving sacrifice of our king by loving any and all, even our enemies, and leveraging our life to expand the royal reign of King Jesus into the hearts of people. May it be so. Amen.